0: Hi, and welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Evening Community Podcast. We're a church community in Sydney, Australia, who are passionate about pursuing God together and seeing the world changed by His love. We hope this message challenges and inspires you. For more talks and other resources, please visit our website, www.northridge.org.au.
1: We're in week two of a series called The Kingdom Reformation. And what we're doing in this series is we're kind of taking a step back from the like normal Sunday Bible teaching we do, taking a step back and we're looking at what exactly is it that Christians believe and where does that come from? Now, last week we talked about that historically. We went through a little bit of church history, um, and I propose that the gospel over the, the centuries and millennia of church history has actually changed in its meaning um, and is changing again Uh, In our lifetime, and I would like to think that it's changing to more like the understanding that Jesus had Um, If that sounds controversial to you, have a listen to last week's talk Um, Tonight, rather than looking at church history, we're going to take a look at the Bible Oh, hello Siri, no please don't do that There we go Um, I think every time I say Siri's Except for that time Um, Anyway, we're taking a look at the Bible Which is just, this is the most extraordinary book ever put together. It has influenced human history more than any other text. Um, People have bought it more times than any other book. Uh, This book has absolutely turned my life upside down as I have got to know it. Um, And so we're going to take a look at what exactly this book is tonight. And how the way that we read it can shape our understanding of what it says. Oh, hello, Jen. I'm getting messages from Jen now. I'm going to go on airplane mode. There we go. Sorry, Jen. Um, I'm not doing any drawing this week, by the way. Um, I'm not very good at it, but what I do have for you instead is data visualizations, so they're coming up. Uh, now, where was I? I got distracted by getting messages from Jen. I should watch the video that Jen just sent me of Davey. Should I? No, I'm not going to do that now, because you guys can't see. It. Yeah, no, we... We're not able to do that, unfortunately. Um, now, where, where are we up to? Yes, we're taking a look at the Bible. Um, for a long time, there's sort of almost been this like, assumption that the Bible is basically a manual for how to get to heaven. But I want to suggest to us tonight that it is so much more than that. It is so much richer and deeper and more extraordinary than we ever uh, could have believed. Um, we're learning how to read the Bible, not just information about how to get to heaven, we're learning to read it as a single unified story that tells of God's redemption plan for his broken creation. Um, and tonight, as we talk about the Bible, we're not just talking about it from a theological perspective. I realize that for some people, maybe, maybe some of us here tonight, the Bible has been used against us. Um, people have held scripture up to us. Uh, people have tried to control us using scripture, and it's been painful My hope is that tonight, if you're one of those people, then this can redeem this incredible book for you a little bit. Um, But for all of us, my hope tonight is that as we unpack what exactly the Bible is, um, is that we as a community would fall in love with this book in a whole new way. Um, For me, the Bible is, it's one of my life's great passions. I love reading it. I love studying it. I love learning about it. Uh, And my hope is that our, our love for the Bible tonight would just go up a whole step. I also, I think it's important to say at the front that as we kind of dig beneath the surface a little bit with the Scriptures, I am absolutely not trying to minimize the importance of the Bible. Um, I personally, and we here in the Vineyard, we have a very, very high view of Scripture, so it's important that you hear that uh, from from the outset. But when we let the Bible speak to us on its own terms rather than just reading it as if it's written to us, when we read the Bible for what it is, I think it actually gives us an even deeper um, appreciation of how profound this book is. So, what exactly is the Bible? Uh, I'm glad you asked. Um, like I said, we're not drawing, but we have some data visualization. So what I want us to do is kind of try somehow to forget everything that you know about Scripture. And let's start from very, the very beginning. So, Sean, can we have the first chart? Here we go. Now, the, the wording is a little bit too small to read, but it's, the, the exact details aren't... It's a bit clearer on that projector, I think. Oh, is it? Yeah, the, there you go. If you want to be able to read it, you can read it from the front row. Um, but don't worry, if you can't read it, the, the exact points aren't um, crucial to understand what I'm trying to say. It's the big picture we're looking at. So first of all, what is the Bible? It is, it's, even though it comes to us in book form, it's probably helpful to realize that the book is actually a set, uh, it's a collection or an anthology, if you will. It's made up of 66 books written by approximately 40 different people. Uh, And here you can see uh, each of the books of the Bible uh, organized by how big they are in terms of the number of chapters. So it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? We were chatting before the service uh, with a few of us about how some of the really, really crucial books of the Bible um, are really small. And how, isn't it interesting how the, um, just, yeah, isn't it interesting looking at it in this way? Now, the scriptures were uh, written over the course of approximately 1600 years. So let's have a quick look at when the scriptures were written. So here we go. Here's our next slide. So he had just, this is just the Old Testament here. This doesn't include the New Testament. We're going to look at that in a moment. But the earliest books that we have, uh, which are, happen to be the first five books in our Bibles, uh, were written somewhere around about 1,500 years before Jesus came along on the scene. Um, and you can see the progression of when all of the different books were written throughout the history of the nation of Israel. Now, the reason that they're different lengths is that represents... Some of them, it's like the Psalms, for example, were compiled over quite a long period of time. For other ones, we don't know exactly when they were written, so those red bars give us a little bit of a a time frame for when they could have been written. But something that is interesting to point out here is that the order that they're written in isn't necessarily the order that they appear in our Bibles. In our Bibles, the different books tend to be grouped by theme or text type, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. Uh, now, when we, have, when we look at the Old Testament, we are looking at the history of the Israelite people uh, from when their nation was founded uh, with Abraham up until about 400 years before Jesus came on the scene where the prophets more or less went silent. Okay, let's pull up the next chart. So this is the New Testament. Now, I've put Jesus' ministry, the years that he was active in his ministry, up there in orange just so you can get a sense of when some of these books were written relative to... Uh, Jesus' ministry. And again, it's interesting seeing which ones were written really early on and which ones came a little bit later, isn't it? And in the New Testament, in these books, this is a collection of histories and letters and prophecies that tell the story of the ministry of Jesus and the first followers who were trying to work out what it looked like to do life um, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ministry. One other thing I wanted to say about the scriptures before we move on from these these graphs is that these aren't the only writings that we have from this time. If you do a little bit of research, you'll find that there's all sorts of other literature that's come out of the same time period. Uh, Why isn't that in our Bible? Well, one helpful way to think about the way that the Bible is compiled, it's kind of like, imagine you have a library or or you have a bookshelf and you you read through uh, all the books on the bookshelf regularly and you find the ones that you just keep coming back to, the ones that are just tried and true, and you, you put them on the top shelf. And over time, you get this collection of the ones that you absolutely know you can trust. And that's what our Bibles are today. Um, in the early church, there are a whole lot of different lists that were circulating of which letters were considered to be authoritative. And uh, the one that was most agreed upon became our Bibles. So that's a bit of an understanding of, uh, of where our Bibles came from. There are some very fascinating other things that you can read from the time, if you're that way inclined. Now, something, another thing that's really important to understand about the Bible, uh, and this is where our next graph comes in handy, is that it's not just a book of history. In fact, there's a whole lot of different uh, kinds of texts that we get in this book. So the, I've put the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, as their own category because they're a kind of mix of, um, of poetry and law and history. So they stand on their own. Uh, We've got uh, history The Old Testament's the the dark green And then the New Testament's the uh, light green up there We've got a whole lot of poetry For example, the Psalms would probably be where a lot of those chapters are coming from But also the Song of Solomon uh, would be another example of biblical poetry There's a little bit of philosophy in there, which is always good fun Uh, We've got lots and lots of prophecy in both the Old Testament But also a little bit in the New Testament uh, and then isn't it interesting looking at how, how much of the Bible is made up of let, letters written by the Apostle Paul it's really fascinating seeing uh, how much air time in our in our Bibles Paul gets and that's going to become important in a little bit and then finally we've got some letters written by people who weren't Paul um, and the reason that I wanted to show you this graph is because it's really important to realise when you're reading the scripture it's not always obvious what kind of book that you're reading but the way that you read a poem, for example, is going to be very different to the way that you read history, isn't it? Uh, an example would be the book of Job, which is in the Old Testament. It's considered to be the, old, the first written book or one of the first written books in, in our Bibles. Um, but it, it's this kind of like wonderfully beautiful but also slightly confusing reflection on human suffering. Um, and if you were to read it as history, you would become very confused, Uh, But when you realise that it's actually written as a poem or a play, it makes a lot more sense, and the way that you read it is quite different. Uh, The final graph that I want to show you, um, this is a really interesting one. This is um, the number of major English translations of the Bible that have been available um, over the different decades since the 1360s. Isn't it interesting to see? Now, this isn't every translation. This, This is major translations, that were um, major enough to make it onto the Wikipedia page for this. Uh, And and it's also only complete translations, so it doesn't count um, ones that only did the New or the Old Testament. Um, And the reason I think the 2020s are not quite so high is because we're only just starting on the 2020s. Um, I'm sure lots of Bibles got translated during COVID lockdowns. But anyway, the point of showing you this is it's actually really important that when you read the Bible in English, you're reading a translated work. Uh, Most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew Most of the New Testament is written in Greek There is a little bit of Aramaic uh, Scattered in there which is uh, not a lot of people Realize, it's very fascinating Uh, But when you translate If you speak more than one language You'll realize that when you translate You're not necessarily just translating uh, Greek words into English words Or Hebrew words into English words You're also trying to translate Thoughts and you're trying to translate A culture and a whole lot of um, assumptions that lie behind the text that don't get carried across if you just do word-for-word. Word. In fact, if you read a word-for-word word translation, there's one called Young's Literal Translation, look it up. Um, pick a verse you know really well. It's, it's really strange. It actually reads really, really odd. So, and that's important to point out because you need to realize that when we read uh, an English Bible, there is some level of interpretation that's required when you you take um, a different language and convert it into English. And that's going to become really important shortly. But an example of that would be the concept of shalom. If you find the word shalom in uh, in Hebrew, generally it means, quite often it just means hello or goodbye. It's the, the word that they would use as a greeting. But what you don't realize when someone uses that as a greeting is that it doesn't just mean hello or goodbye. The concept of shalom represents this deep, wholeness and wellness of the soul. Uh, and so it's actually kind of like a blessing of peace. So that's just one example of uh, the challenge of translation. So with all of this um, data, and you can, you can take that one off the screen now, Sean. Uh, with all this data, how as Christians are we supposed to actually view the Bible? How do, how, do we, how do we read it? How do we take it? If you do a little bit of Googling and research on that question, what you'll probably come up against is a whole lot of really um, nasty debates that academic people have about words like infallibility and inerrancy. Uh, And you realize that there are actually some slightly different but really significant differences in the way that Christians around the world read the Bible. And so I want to try and make it really, really simple for you. And I want to say that I firmly believe from the bottom of my heart that this is the book that God meant us to have. This is the book that God meant for us to have as his people um, following after him that this book is exactly what we need. I believe that although the Bible was penned in ink by human authors that it was God's Holy Spirit writing through them uh, yet yeah, writing through them. Um, and I've come to realize that when you're reading through the Scripture and you find something that doesn't fit with your worldview or doesn't fit with your understanding um, of the rest of Scripture, rather than writing an off as, oh, well, that's just old-fashioned or that's just the Bible, you keep digging because you're always going to find gold when you do that. And so, like I said earlier, I personally and we in this church have an extremely high view of Scripture, um, and we believe that this is the book that God gave us to reveal himself and to reveal Jesus. Now, I said right at the beginning that the way that we, are, the way that we as Christians and, and as the mainstream church read the Bible is changing in our lifetime. Uh, and so what do I mean by that? I want to give us just a few things that are changing. And let me be clear. I don't think that we're, we're the generation that finally got the Bible right. I think it's important to uh, be humble enough to realize that there are going to be people in 100 years' uh, time who know much better than us. Um, But what is happening is that we're starting to learn how to, rather than just reading the Bible and then um, casting its message straight onto our modern uh, world and read it with a modern worldview, we're starting to realize that it wasn't actually written to us. It was written to a people for a purpose, and so one of the things that's changing about in our lifetime about the way that we read the Bible is that we have an increased understanding of the cultural context and how that affects our interpretation of the Bible. Uh, I mentioned last week that there was a major discovery in 1947. Uh, archaeologists uncovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I've got a photo of some of them, actually, that I'll put up. There we go. Uh, yeah, there was this major discovery of these Dead Sea Scrolls, which was a huge collection of biblical texts, but also other writings from around the time that gave us this brand new insight that we never had before into the world in Jesus' time. In the, the last 500 years since the Reformation, there's been an enormous, enormous amount of academic work that's been done on um, on the Bible, on the translation. on the, I mean, if you look at that graph from before and how many different translations there are, there's a reason that there's an exponentially growing number of Bible translations. The reason why whenever we study a book in this community, the first talk, we generally always go through and ask questions like, who wrote this book? Who did they write it to? And why did they write it? Because that kind of information is absolutely crucial to understanding what they're trying to say. Now, I want to give you uh, one example of how um, changing lenses can actually give you quite a different interpretation of a passage. And I want to read you just a brief um, excerpt from Ephesians chapter 5. You might be familiar with this one. This passage has been a little bit notorious over the years. It says, so Ephesians 5.22, it says, "'Wives, submit to your husbands.'" In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they, fr- they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. Now, reading that with a modern lens, if we were to just open the Bible, read that, and shut the Bible again, um, with a modern lens, what that seems to be doing without any more context, is it seems to be basically setting up a, a structure of male headship within families. And, and if, you, if you read, particularly um, if you read verse 22 on its own, it seems to be reasonably clear about that. Um, now, there's a, an absolutely excellent article, which if you're interested in, I've got a few copies of it here, and, and if I need more, I can print them off, that actually goes really deep into the cultural context of this passage. Um, but to give you the, the really quick take-home, what we don't realize as modern readers is that Paul is actually riffing off of what would have been a very well-known household code in the time. So this, so if you, you look through other texts from the time, you'll find something that actually reads very similarly to this. But what, Paul, what these ancient texts do that Paul doesn't, they don't mention uh, husbands loving their wives. It just says, wives submit to your husbands. So what Paul is actually doing uh, in this culture is, is quite radically almost feminist. Because if you read through, so if you look at, for example, um, Galatians chapter 3, where it says, uh, there's, there's uh, no, no male nor female, no slave nor free, no Jew nor Gentile. The early church were trying to get their heads around this radical new community where everyone was welcome at the table and it didn't matter who you were. And so what Paul's saying here in the cultural context is absolutely radical because the assumption was that husbands could treat their wives however they wanted, but he's saying, no, if you're part of the family of Christ, then everyone is welcome at the table. Now, I'm not going to go too much further down that rabbit hole, um, but the article's there. It goes deeper. It even looks at how the the Roman household was structured, where all the different rooms uh, were, and how that helps us interpret this passage. It's really good stuff. But the point is, the lens that we take to the Scriptures is really, really important. I do also just want to mention at this point that if you don't have a uh, degree in biblical theology, it doesn't mean you can't read the Bible. Um, There are some examples that are like this where context totally changes the meaning, but there are other ones where the Bible is very, very clear. And the translators have done a wonderful job um, of giving us uh, the Scriptures as God intended them. And so my advice to you is, uh, if you're reading it, um, it's in, in an English translation, a major English translation. It's good stuff. And if you don't in- understand, then dig further. So, th- so that's the first thing that I believe is changing, is that we have um, a massively increased understanding of cultural context around the time of Jesus that helps us to interpret the Bible. The second thing is and this is a bit of a nerdy word alert, so just be ready, Um, we are experiencing a shift in our thinking, the way that we study the Bible, um, from systematic theology towards narrative theology. Now, like I said, nerdy words, so I've illustrated them for you. So systematic theology... I've got a slide for this one, Sean. There we go. Um, What systematic theology does, and I'm, I'm not trying to say it's bad. It's just an approach to looking at the Bible... What systematic theology does is it takes the Scripture and looks for themes. So, for example, if we want to know about sin, let's find all of the verses in the Scriptures that talk about sin and let's build a theology based on that. Um, Let's look at all of the uh, verses, for example, that talk about mission and let's build a theology of mission from across the Bible. Uh, Let's look at the Holy Spirit throughout the whole Scripture and see what it has to say. Now, this is a really good way, if you want to understand a particular topic, this is a really good way to do it because you're getting a a kind of cross-section of all the different parts of the Bible. But one of the challenges is, if we take this approach to its logical extreme, then we can actually start to put pieces together that aren't actually there. Um, One one danger that we can run into when we're talking uh, about the Scripture is if you make a statement and then put a biblical reference after it, you can almost say anything. You can combine verses in in kind of weird ways that make them seem to say something, that they're not. Now, this isn't to say that systematic theology is bad. Like I said, it's just one way to interpret the Bible. What people are beginning to do is to realize that the Bible isn't actually a theology textbook, and it was never meant to be. What the Bible is, is a story. And so this is where we get the next slide, which is narrative theology. what we realize is that the Bible tells a unified story from the beginning of time uh, to when Jesus returns. uh, And it's real messy. But when we're looking at the Scriptures, um, we can't just look at it in a systematic way. We also need to ask ourselves, what is the overarching narrative um, that's happening in the Scripture? And we need to compare individual verses to that to work out how to interpret them. To return to... um, to return to our uh, Ephesians 5 passage before, when we're looking at uh, the role of women in the church and women in ministry particularly, when we look through, um, there are a couple of verses like the one that I've just read that would seem to say one thing about the role of women. But when you look through the rest of Scripture, you see that from the beginning to the end, you get quite a different picture. So, for example, the fact that uh, the creation of woman is included in the Genesis creation story. It's actually kind of revolutionary for the time. We see women all throughout the Old Testament subverting the patriarchal society and uh, playing really key roles. So the book of Esther is a really good example um, of a woman saving the whole nation of Israel. Um, we know from the scriptures, uh, from the gospels, that there were a lot of women who were followers of Jesus in their own right. Um, And particularly when we get uh, a couple of women discovering that Jesus is risen from the dead, God revealing to them first that Jesus was risen from the dead. It's absolutely extraordinary when you consider um, the cultural setting that they were in. There's another really interesting one in, uh, towards the end of Romans, Paul is giving a list of some of the people he regards as some of the, the most, the kind of the I can't remember the language he uses exactly, but he gives a list of these um, apostles that really impress him. And one of the first people on this list uh, is a woman named Junia. And in later translations of the Bible, someone obviously thought, well, look obviously couldn't have been a woman, so they translated it to Junius. But then when they look back over some of the earliest manuscripts, they realize, actually, yeah, Paul is listing a woman as one of the uh, foremost apostles. And so all of that is to say that when we, when we approach the scripture, we need to read individual verses in the context of the whole story as well. And that's what narrative theology gives us. So when we take narrative and systematic theology together, it gives us a really wonderful picture of the scripture. Now, just a couple more before I show you a video. Uh, one other change that's happening um, that's, that's quite recent in the way that we read and interpret the Scripture is uh, we realise that for a long time, basically since the Reformation, we've been reading the rest of the Bible through the lens of Paul's letters. Remember on the the graph that I showed you earlier, we had this chunk of Scripture that is letters written by the Apostle Paul. Now, don't hear me saying that his letters aren't incredibly, incredibly important. They are. Um, But a little while ago, someone said wouldn't it make more sense to interpret the rest of the Bible through the ministry of Jesus and the message of Jesus rather than through the letters of Paul? And it's fascinating because if you've ever read through the whole New Testament, if you take a step back, it almost seems, uh, from a cursory glance, it almost seems like Paul and Jesus are talking about different things. You know, Jesus is all about the kingdom of God. It's it's his obsession topic that is all he talks about. And then you have oh so much of what he talks about. Then you have Paul, who's mostly talking about uh, justification by faith and how that works. Are they actually preaching different gospels? Well, the answer is clearly no. Uh, Because what happens is when you start with Jesus' ministry and you start with... Uh, the kingdom of God and the Bible, the whole story of the scripture being about uh, God's rescue plan for his broken creation. It it puts a whole new light on uh, the writings of Paul and it gives us a slightly different perspective. We realize that what Paul's trying to do is Paul's kind of trying to figure out the nuts and bolts of how to do community, uh, how to be God's church, uh, how to, you know, if, if you're a Jewish person who's now following Jesus, how does that work? And he's trying to figure that all out with the churches uh, that he's writing to. And suddenly you get this new perspective, uh, which you can Google, the new perspective on Paul, um, that suddenly gels the whole New Testament into this incredible work that's all saying exactly the same thing. So if the Bible is a single story from start to finish, if it's all saying the same thing, if the whole Old Testament narrative is leading up to the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, and the whole New Testament is trying to uh, work out what to do um, as his people, as his church, as we await his, his return, then what exactly is that narrative? Now, you've all listened very well to me. Um, so I'm going to sit down, and we're going to let uh, our friend Tim Mackey and John Collins from The Bible Project They're going to tell us what the story of the Bible is.
0: The Bible is an important book, but it's really long.
2: Yeah, it's a collection of many books written over a long period of time, but all together they tell one unified story.
0: So, what's the story of the Bible?
2: Well, it begins by introducing us to a beautiful mind, the author of all reality, a being called God. And he has the power to take the dark chaos of the uncreated
0: world and bring about order and beauty and a garden full of life. And to crown this accomplishment, God appoints these creatures called humanity. Or in Hebrew, Adam. And they're made as God's image.
2: Which means that they're commissioned to rule this beautiful world on God's behalf by harnessing all of its potential and creating even more beauty and
0: order. This is a story about humans using their power to do meaningful, life-giving work. But the question is... How? Yeah, humanity now faces a choice that's represented
2: by a fruit tree. So humans could partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or they could seize power and define good and evil on their own,
0: which, God warns, will kill them. And they hear the voice of a dark, mysterious creature that tells them the choice is simple. Take the fruit. It'll give you power and freedom to rule the world on your own terms. And so they seize this
2: knowledge. And as a result, they become suspicious and self-protective. It leads to fractured relationships, violent power grabs, and ultimately a whole civilization, Babylon, that has redefined evil as a good. And so God scatters
0: this corrupted human project. And here the story of the Bible takes an important turn. We zoom in to the story of a man and a woman who come out of Babylon, Abraham and Sarah.
2: Yeah, God promises that from them will come a new people, a nation that has another
0: chance to make the right choice. And if they succeed, it
2: will open up this new way forward for the rest of humanity.
0: And this is why the rest of the Bible story is about this family. And it does
2: not go well despite God's personal guidance, Abraham's family gives in to that same temptation to redefine good and evil on their own terms, apart from God.
0: Even when their best people were in charge, rulers who loved God's guidance and had divine wisdom, even they gave in.
2: And so Israel was warned by their own prophets that these choices would lead them back to Babylon, this time as conquered captives living in exile. And that's exactly
0: what happened. So, even with God's personal guidance, Israel fails. Who can succeed? Well, the prophet said that the
2: story wasn't over. God's going to send a new leader to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make
0: the right choice. And so the part of the Bible called the Old Testament ends and these promises are left hanging. And then the biblical story continues into the New Testament. We're introduced
2: to a man who comes from the line of Israel's kings, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said that he was bringing all these promises to their completion.
0: He confronted that dark, mysterious evil that all humanity has given into and resisted its power. And then
2: he announced that God had arrived to rule the world through himself. Jesus taught about God's definition of good and evil. And he said that real power is serving others. According to Jesus, it is people who love the poor and even love their enemies. These are the kinds of people who actually rule the world. That is confusing, but also really beautiful. And So is the claim that the story goes on to make about Jesus, that he is God become human, to be for Israel and for all humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself. And his sacrificial love proved more powerful than evil, than even death itself.
0: So now humanity is presented with a new choice. Represented by a new tree. Stick with the old way of being human
2: or venture into this new way. And in the story, those who choose the way of Jesus find themselves energized by God's own power people who know that they are loved and forgiven by God can become people who love and forgive others in return.
0: The Jesus movement quickly spread throughout the world, forming these new communities of people who follow the way of Jesus.
2: But they faced problems. There was persecution from the outside by people in power, and inside there was confusion, even compromise.
0: Yeah, because following Jesus
2: is really hard. And so the movement's leaders, called apostles, they wrote letters to comfort and to challenge these communities to stay faithful to the difficult way of Jesus.
0: And they're called to hope for the day when Jesus will come and change everything. And so, the Bible ends by pointing
2: to the future day, when all wrongs are made right, when evil is eradicated, heaven and earth are united, and humanity can rule the world together in the love and
0: power of God. Okay, so that is the story of the Bible, and it brings all of these books together.
2: But what is interesting is that each book contains a different kind of literature that contributes to this story in a unique way, and that is what the next video will begin to explore.
1: I love that cheeky pass to the next video at the end there. You can just jump on the Bible Project website if you want to watch that one. You know what blows me away about that story? Well, so many things blow me away about that story. But the thing that, as I was watching it just now, that God just absolutely hit me with is that that is the story that we're a part of. We are a part, like sitting here right now, we are participating in that story. What an extraordinary, extraordinarily privilege to be a part of that. Um, when we do ministry time in a moment, I hope that that sinks in for some of us—the absolute magnitude of what it is that we are chasing after when we gather in this place and where we go about our lives. I do want to offer a few final thoughts and uh, little caveats to what I've said tonight. Um, The first thing is that none of what I've said is attempting to make the Bible more palatable to a modern audience. That's not what we're doing. What we're trying to do is utilize the tools that we have available to us um, to interpret the Scripture. Now, I believe that the Bible will never get it wrong. It will never get it wrong, but our interpretation might. And so we're not trying to kind of dumb down or or make the Bible seem more relevant to a modern audience. We're trying to let it speak for itself and use all the tools at our disposal to do that. I've said it before, but I'm going to say it one more time. We have a very, very high view of Scripture here in the Vineyard. um, And my hope is that from tonight, you will have at least some new insight or some new appreciation of just how extraordinary this book is. It's absolutely, like, if you read and understand this book even a little bit, it will absolutely radically alter your life. And the final thing is, I hinted at this already, but we're not trying to say that we're the ones that finally got the gospel right. That's not the message uh, from tonight. What we are trying to do is we're trying to uh, humble ourselves and take the position of a learner and realize that maybe the way that we thought things were is is only part of the story. Maybe the the story of Scripture is actually way bigger Way more incredible than we ever could have realized. And we want to, yeah, we want to take the position of a learner and let the Bible speak to us in its own right. And so that's hopefully uh, just clarifying a few little things. Um, I love this book so much, and it's my prayer that you would fall in love with this book um, just a little bit more tonight. So why don't we stand and why don't we pray? And uh, let's let the Lord do some ministry to us.